the art of listening. What exactly was the first sin? What was the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Is this kind of knowledge a bad thing such that it had to be forbidden and was only acquired through sin? Isn't knowing the difference between good and evil essential to being human? Isn't it one of the highest forms of knowledge? Surely God would want people to have it. Why then did he forbid the fruit that produced it? In any case, didn't Adam and Eve already have this knowledge before eating the fruit, precisely in virtue of being in the image and likeness of God? Surely this was implied in the very fact that they were commanded by God, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over nature, don't eat from the tree. For someone to understand a command, they must know it's good to obey and bad to disobey. So they already had at least potentially the good knowledge of good and evil. What then changed when they ate the fruit? These questions go so deep that they threaten to make the entire story incomprehensible. Maimonides understood this. That's why he turned to this episode almost at the very beginning of the Guide for the Perplexed. But his answer is perplexing. Before eating the fruit, he says, the first humans knew the difference between truth and falsehood. What they acquired by eating the fruit was knowledge of things generally accepted. But what does Maimonides mean by things generally accepted? It's generally accepted that murder is evil and honesty good. Does Maimonides mean that morality is mere convention? Surely not. What he means is that after eating the fruit, the man and woman were embarrassed that they were naked. And that is a matter of social convention because not everyone is embarrassed by nudity. But how can we equate being embarrassed that you are naked with knowledge of good and evil? It doesn't seem to be that sort of thing at all. Conventions of dress have more to do with aesthetics than ethics. It's all very unclear. Or at least it was to me until I came across one of the more fascinating moments in the history of the Second World War. After the attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Americans knew they were about to enter a war against a nation, Japan, whose culture they didn't understand. So they commissioned one of the great anthropologists of the 20th century, Ruth Benedict, to explain the Japanese to them, which she did. After the war, she published her ideas in a book, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. One of her central insights was the difference between shame cultures and guilt cultures. In shame cultures, the highest value is honor. In guilt cultures, it's righteousness. Shame is feeling bad that we fail to live up to the expectations others have of us. Guilt is what we feel when we fail to live up to what our own conscience demands of us. Shame is other-directed. Guilt is inner-directed. Philosophers, among them Bernard Williams, have pointed out that shame cultures are usually visual. Shame itself has to do with how you appear or imagine you appear in other people's eyes. The instinctive reaction to shame is to wish you were invisible or somewhere else. Guilt, by contrast, is much more internal. You can't escape guilt by coming, becoming invisible or being elsewhere. Your conscience accompanies you wherever you go, regardless of whether you're seen by others. Guilt cultures are cultures of the ear, not the eye. With this contrast in mind, we can now understand 
the story of the first sin. It's all about appearances, about shame, about vision, about eyes. The serpent says to the woman, God knows on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that, in fact, is what happens. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that both of them were naked. It was the appearance of the tree that the Torah emphasizes. It says the woman saw that the tree was good to eat and desirable to the eyes and that the tree was attractive as a means to gain intelligence. The key emotion in the story isn't guilt, it's shame. Before eating the fruit, the couple were naked but unashamed. After eating it, they felt shame and they sought to hide. Every element of the story, the fruit, the tree, the nakedness, and the shame, has the visual element typical of a shame culture. But in Judaism, we believe that God is heard, not seen. The first humans heard God's voice moving about in the garden with the wind of the day. Replying to God, the man says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Note the deliberate, even humorous irony of what the couple did. They heard God's voice in the garden and they hid themselves from God among the trees of the garden. But the thing is, you can't hide from a voice. Hiding means trying not to be seen. It's an immediate intuitive response to shame. But the Torah is the supreme example of a culture of guilt, not shame. And you cannot escape guilt by hiding. Guilt has nothing to do with appearances and everything to do with conscience, the voice of God in the human heart. The sin of the first humans in the Garden of Eden was that they followed their eyes, not their ears. Their actions were determined by what they saw, the beauty of the tree, not by what they heard, namely the word of God commanding them not to eat from it. The result was that they did indeed acquire a knowledge of good and evil, but it was the wrong kind. They acquired an ethic of shame, not guilt, an ethic of appearances, not conscience. And that, I believe, is what Maimonides meant when he made the distinction between true and false and things generally accepted. A guilt ethic is about the inner voice that tells you this is right, this is wrong, as clearly as this is true, this is false. But a shame ethic is about social convention. It's a matter of meeting or not it meeting the expectations others have of you. Shame cultures are essentially codes of social conformity. They belong to groups where socialization takes the form of eternalizing the values of the group such that you feel shame, an acute form of embarrassment when you break them, knowing that if people discover what you've done, you'll lose honor and face. Judaism is precisely not that kind of morality, because Jews don't conform to what everyone else does. Abraham was willing, say the sages, to be on one side while all the rest of the world was on the other. Haman says about the Jews, their customs are different from those of all other people. Jews have often been iconoclasts, challenging the idols of the age, the received wisdom, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the politically correct. If Jews had followed the majority, they would have disappeared long ago. In the biblical age, they were the only monotheists in a pagan world. For most of the post-biblical age, they lived in societies in which they and their faith 
were shared by only a tiny minority of the population. Judaism is a living protest against the herd instinct. Ours is the dissenting voice in the conversation of humankind. Hence the ethic of Judaism is not a matter of appearances, of honor and shame, and conformism to social expectation. It's a matter of hearing and heeding the voice of God in the depths of the soul. So the drama of Adam and Eve isn't about apples or sex or original sin or the fall interpretations the non-Jewish West has given to it. It's about something deeper. It's about the kind of morality we're called on to live. Are we to be governed by what everyone else does? As if morality were like politics, the will of the majority? Will our emotional horizon be bounded by honor and shame to profoundly social feelings? Is our key value appearance, how we seem to others? Or is it something else altogether, a willingness to heed the word and will of God? Adam and Eve in Eden faced the archetypal human choice between what their eyes saw, the tree and its fruit, and what their ears heard, God's command. Because they chose the first, they felt shame, not guilt. That is the one form of knowledge of good and evil. But from a Jewish perspective, it's not the only one, it's not even the right one. Judaism is a religion of listening, not seeing. That's not to say that there are no visual elements in Judaism, there are, but they're not primary. Listening is the sacred task. The most famous command in Judaism is Shema Yisrael, listen Israel. What made Abraham, Moses, and the prophets different from their contemporaries was that they heard the voice that to others was inaudible. In one of the great dramatic scenes of the Bible, God teaches Elijah that he isn't in the whirlwind, the earthquake, or the fire, but in the still, small voice. It takes training, focus, and the ability to create silence in the soul to learn how to listen, whether to God or to a fellow human being. Seeing shows us the beauty of the created world, but listening connects us to the soul of another, and sometimes to the soul of the other, God, as he speaks to us, calls to us, summoning us to our task in the world. If I were asked how to find God, I would say, learn to listen. Listen to the song of the universe in the call of birds, the rustle of trees, the crush, crash and heave of the waves. Listen to the poetry of prayer, the music of the psalms. Listen deeply to those you love and who love you. Listen to the words of God in the Torah and hear them speak to you. Listen to the debates of the sages through the centuries as they try to hear the texts, intimations, and inflections. Don't worry about how you or others look. The world of appearances is a false world of masks, disguises, and concealments. Listening isn't easy. I confess I find it formidably hard. But listening alone bridges the abyss between soul and soul, self and other, I and the divine. Jewish spirituality is the art of listening.